Friends, we are exploring the Sikha in Lakutu Sikha's volume 15, the Sikha of Vayechi number four. And it is nominally a Siyum of Mesechta Kiddushin. It's a Sikha that discusses the closing lines of the tractate of Kiddushin. And as is customary when we finish a tractate, and the Rebbe was very big on this custom, to talk and elaborate and uh, give teachings that can be derived from the end of the tractate. We'll see at the end of our class today how it relates to the Torah portion. As I often do, I'm not presenting the Sikha exactly in the order that it's presented in the Sikha um, for the sake of clarity. So the tractate condition has a teaching, its closing teaching is that uh, we should know that uh, the animals are here to serve us and we are here to serve Hashem. And we should further know that the animals are only here to serve us. They make a living without too much hassle. Did you ever see a lion that's a porter? Did you ever see a deer that's a fig dryer? Says the Talmud. Did you ever see a, a fox that's, a, a, that's a, a, a shop owner, a store owner? Did you ever see a, a wolf that's a, a pot salesman? You didn't see it. How do they make a living? They make a living. It just happens. The food chain. It works. And they're only here to serve you. Certainly you are here to serve Hashem. You should be able to make your living without over-obsessing. Why is it that we do over-obsess? And it is more complicated for humans because of our sin. That's the closing of the tractate. Uh, the conversation, I'm assuming it's uh, is alluding to the sin of Adam and Eve, who were punished that they should have to struggle to make a living. Because ideally and nominally, it should have just been a natural thing. Just like there's a food chain, everything works. The humans should have been part of it. Because of our sin, we have to struggle. And uh, as God told Adam and Eve, by extension, each of us, our own personal sins, animals don't sin. They're, they don't have to be choice. And therefore, the food comes easily. But the lesson to us is that uh, we shouldn't really over-obsess and we should leave it up to Hashem because really he takes care of all the animals. And we're greater than them. They're only here to serve us. And we're here to serve Hashem. Says the Rebbe that uh, everything in the Talmud is precise. It's part of Torah. Why does the Talmud choose these particular examples that we gave? We talked about the, we never saw a deer being a, 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 a being a fig dryer and a lion being a porter. We get four examples. To be more precise, there are two versions of the Talmud, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem. And we're going to see that the Babylonian Talmud only has three examples. The Jerusalem has a fourth. And the order is somewhat changed. You know, and someone else might say, well, it, it's just a, a conversation. No, but a Rebbe, everything in the Talmud is perfect and precise. And the choices that are made and the type of examples that are given is precise. And, uh, and and not only that, but the way they appear in each of the Talmud. So let's pull up a little spreadsheet that puts it out there. So in the Babylonian Talmud, there are three examples given. We've never seen a deer as a fig dryer, a lion as a porter, and a fox as a storekeeper. In Jerusalem Talmud, you'll see there's two changes. Number one is the lion comes before the deer. And number two, is an additional fourth trait of the wolf being a pot seller. So again, someone else might dismiss it to the Rebbe. This is precise. What, only these three examples. And a fourth one in Jerusalem with the variation as said before. So the Rebbe says, what's going on here? What is the Talmud trying to tell us? Is this trying to be cute? There's so many animals that only chose these three. I mean, what, what's the point? The Rebbe says on a bigger level, it's trying to explain to us our role by looking at the animals. The animals are here uh, 
and really probably all of the food chain, to prepare for the human and therefore to prepare for the Jew to serve Hashem, as per the language in the Talmud. When you do a mitzvah, very often you can see clearly how that happens. Choose a mitzvah and you'll see how that mitzvah is used. You use sometimes plant to shake the lula, for example. You use the animal uh, to get the horns for the shofar or the hide for the mezuzah or the Torah scroll or the tefillin. And then a human uh, might help and then the Jew does the mitzvah and it elevates. So there's a process. And that's really, says the Rebbe, what the Talmud is saying, what the Gemara is teaching us here at the closing of this very special tractate of Kiddushit, which perhaps is an allusion for our marriage with Hashem, that what is our job? To make the physical world holy for Hashem by elevating it through physical acts, physical hide, physical animal, it becomes a Torah scroll, etc. And we do it with the help of other humans who help the Jewish people, and in turn, by animals who help the humans and really all of the entire uh, system. That's what the Talmud is telling us. Understand your role. And look at the animals to see how they're doing their role and follow suit. And the Rebbe is saying that we could, uh, we, we, we could we therefore read the Talmud at a much deeper level here. But the fact that the Talmud chooses these four, first of all, there's a connection between each one and the trade that the Talmud alludes to in relation to it. Some of this is from commentary. So for example, if you're looking at the bottom of the screen, we have the, the deer uh, as a fig dryer. The language is you've never seen a deer as a fig dryer, meaning that a, it would make sense that it should be. What's the connection? So the commentaries in the Talmud say because uh, it sleeps with one eye open and a fig dryer has to be watching and guarding. The lion is never seen as a porter, but why should it be? Because it's strong. Porters are strong. The fox is not seen as a storekeeper, but why should it be? It's sly. It would make sense that it would be the businessman among the animal kingdom if they were, in fact, making a living with various trades. The wolf, why would the wolf be connected to the selling of pots? This is not from Talmudic commentary. This is the Rebbe's own commentary. The Rebbe says the wolf, as opposed to the lion, for example, who eats his kill right on the spot, the wolf schleps it back to the den, which represents like a pot. A pot means I'm going to cook it, I'm going to wait, I'll make it good, I'm not just going to have it. And uh, therefore it makes sense, he takes the time to schlep it back, he has the comfort of his den, he has his mishpucha, and he enjoys it more, and that's symbolized by the concept of uh, selling pots. So that's the correlation to the animals. Already the Rebbe is showing us, with the help of commentary here, and his own addition, that everything is lined up perfectly. But then the Rebbe says, if we understand that the theme of the mission is not just to tell us, don't worry about making a living, animals make a living too. But the theme of the mission is really to, to point out our place in that chain. And I want to call it the food chain, the mitzvah chain. That it's all about making from gashmis, from physicality, into holiness, into a mitzvah. And the animals play a tremendous role in that. We only have a chauffeur and a Torah and tzitzis, etc., etc., through animals. So therefore, we have to understand our role in serving Hashem, and that should become our direction and our purpose in life. Says the Rebbe, that's why the Talmud chooses these three or four animals and these three or four professions. Because in a general sense, although we can learn lessons from likely from every animal and every part of creation, these three or four animals and these professions, what they represent, tell the whole story of transforming physical into spiritual, transforming Gashmi's materialism into mitzvahs. How so? so? Let's go in order. What does a fig dryer mean? I'm on the bottom of the screen, the mitzvah connection. The mitzvah connection, this is all from the Rebbe. The fig dryer, 
represents just like you take the fig and it's part of the cluster of figs or whatever on the branch, and you separate it and you dry it and you prepare it and you guard it and you make it available for eating. That's similar to the concept that many mitzvahs need preparation. You can't blow a shofar unless you first uh, take it off the animal. You can't make a torah scroll until you take the hide and work it out. There's a lot of work involved. The same thing with the tzitzis, the same thing with the lulav and the yesrog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on, matzah. So therefore, there are many steps in preparing an object to become available for a mitzvah. That's the first thing on the list. The pig dryer. The next thing is the porter. You, you, now that you have that object, you have the wool and it's ready to be tzitzis. You have the chauffeur, the horn, it's ready to be a chauffeur. You have the grape, it's ready to be wine for kiddush. Uh, the, the wheat, it's ready to be matzah, whatever it is. But you also need the Jew. So you got to have a porter. You got to bring it to the location. Location now matters because you can have the best chauffeur in the world, but if it's somewhere in the outback in Western Australia and there's no Jew there to do the chauffeur or to wear the tzitzis, there's no mitzvah. And therefore, the second pivotal piece is the porter. You got to bring it to the Jew. It's got to be in his location. Number three is the concept of a storekeeper, which represents a transferring of ownership. There are many mitzvahs or some mitzvahs where there is a need for the ownership to transfer in order for the mitzvah to be able to be done. The Rebbe cites, for example, uh, the things that are used for idolatry, they're unholy until the Jew buys it away from the Gentile, and now it can be used for a mitzvah and elevated. Uh, there are other examples, right? You, uh, the sukkah has to belong to you, or the mezuzah should be yours and your home. Uh, so sometimes there's a need for transfer of ownership for a mitzvah to become uh, properly fulfilled. And finally, the selling of the pots, what does this represent? This represents arguably the idea of hider mitzvah, to do the mitzvah in a beautiful way. I can do the mitzvah in its raw state, pun intended, or I can have a pot, I can cook it up, I can spice it, I can make it beautiful. I can do the mitzvah, you know, just in the basic way, or I can go out and buy a pot. The metaphor being I can find a better Mrs. I can find a better chauffeur. I can find uh, the best way to celebrate uh, a Shabbos or whatever it is and do the mitzvah in a nicer way. And that will be represented by the uh, the pots uh, selling. So we have here the four animals, the four trades. They're all not just talking about trades, which one can read the Talmud in that way. They don't need to make a living. And then the whole Talmud is just and God forbid, just random, but rather what the Talmud is saying more than just what meets the eye that don't worry about making a living, the animals too make a living without a trade. And it just cites four examples randomly. No. What it's really teaching us is that the animals are part of the process of creation and therefore they're taken care of by Hashem. And you and I are certainly part of the process of creation and therefore we too will be taken care of Hashem by Hashem. And uh, the process of creation is the process of elevating things to make a mitzvah. And these four examples of animals slash traits represent, in a broader sense, the four basic steps of doing a mitzvah. Preparing the physical object, transporting it to the Jew, transferring ownership if need be, and uh, sometimes even waiting for the mitzvah to be done in a better way than it can be done initially. So suddenly the whole thing has a different meaning. So what do we know so far? We understand why these choice animals and trades are selected. Um, we also, says the Rebbe, can now explain why the Torah is so big on comparing the Jewish people 
and the 12 tribes of Israel to animals, which is a connection to today's parasha by Yechi. But Yaakov blesses the Shvatim, his 12 sons, and each one is an animal. Many of them are animals. One is a lion, one is a, a, a wolf, and one is a snake, and one is a donkey. Like, what's with this animal thing? And a lot of these became part of their symbols and the and their flags that they used. If you walk into a shul and you have the 12 windows in many shuls, or the 12 Shvatim, the 12 tribes, you'll see the animals, you'll see the donkey for Yisachar, you'll see the lion for Yehuda. Like, why? If you want to speak about strength, Yehuda represents strength. Talk about strength. Why use the lion? And why use the donkey for that metaphor and the wolf, etc.? What's the point? What's the point? And the Rebbe is helping us understand. You understand. You don't want to know the point? Because the animals um, help us prepare the world for elevation, for mitzvahs. Because many animals are used for mitzvahs, as explained earlier. Plus these four steps that we talked about that animals represent. And therefore, therefore, by Yaakov Avinu telling his sons that you are compared to the animals, some of them different animals, and really by collectively all of them are are a metaphor of, of, of the animal kingdom. The metaphor is perfect. The animal kingdom is there to help elevate the physical so man can use it to do a mitzvah. And the Yidden, the Jewish people, are there to then further. They're not the end in itself. They further have to serve Hashem and elevate it to Hashem. So therefore, they are a form of animal. The animal now becomes a symbol for the agent, for the, for the one who transfers the physical to, to a next level to do a mitzvah. The Jew then takes the mitzvah and brings it to Hashem. And that is specifically the 12 sons of Jacob, who will be the ones who will lead the Jews into Egypt, and the Egyptian exile is really a killing, so to speak. It was there to prepare the Jews to become refined spiritually in order to receive the Torah at Sinai. So the whole Egyptian exile, the whole journeying of the 12 tribes of Israel and the Jewish people to Egypt is for a purpose of a greater elevation of refinement of self and refinement of Egypt and etc. And therefore, it's very much uh, very similar to the concept of uh, of the of the animals and the steps that we talked about earlier. Says the Rebbe now, however, if we look, let's understand now the nuances. We understand the correlation of animals to the 12 tribes. Because both are agents for elevating physical and making it into a mitzvah. The animal starts it and the human finishes it and the Jew completes it. We also understand the specific choices of these four animals and why they're related to these four trades. We also understand why these four trades are central in the preparation of a mitzvah process, as mentioned earlier. So we got a lot of information. We see the closing lines of the Tractate of Kedushin in a whole new light, not just telling you not to obsess about making a living, but how to see your life's purpose. To serve Hashem, to elevate the physical, be an animal, be an agent to transfer the physicality to the holiness. And we now understand uh, a lot of things. What's left, though, are the nuances in the Talmud. That in the Babylonian Talmud, it's different than the Jerusalem Talmud, and and uh, in two ways. First of all, the Babylonian Talmud only has three. The Jerusalem has a fourth analogy. It's quite strange. And also, the order of the Babylonian Talmud has the fig dryer first, and Jerusalem Talmud the porter first. So the Rebbe goes into explain in detail the difference between Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, they each have a role. One of the main differences that's pointed out is that the Babylonian Talmud is focused very much on the present, the Jerusalem Talmud, on the future potential. 
So an example would be in Jewish law, if I can do a mitzvah right now, but I'm not doing it in the optimum way, or I can delay the mitzvah a little bit and do it even better, the Babylonian Talmud would say, do it now. Jerusalem Talmud would say, wait. And the Rebbe gives two examples. One is, uh, if I have a bris, there's a mitzvah to, to do a bris. So clearly what you do, wake up in the morning, the first thing. And you have the concept of doing the mitzvah right away. It's beautiful. However, you're locking in the beauty of the mitzvah. By a bris, it is said that the mitzvah should be done with a large crowd. The language is with a large crowd, there's glory to the king, namely Hashem. However, in the morning, people are running. They don't have time. So if you do the mitzvah in the afternoon, as long as before sunset, it's still kosher. You'll have a lot of people. They won't be running. You'll make a beautiful simcha. Which value is greater? The Babylonian Talmud would say, do the bris first thing in the morning. The Jerusalem Talmud would say, uh-uh, wait till the afternoon. So you won't have the immediate, but you'll have the better quality. And parenthetically, the Rebbe leaned in the direction of the Jerusalem Talmud in this particular mitzvah, and he encouraged Hasidim not to rush or do the bris necessarily first thing in the morning. If by delaying it, you'll have more people and it'll be more of a glorious celebration of a mitzvah. Another example that I have cites, that if I wake up in the morning on Sukkot and I have the lula of the four kinds, but they're a very basic set. But I know that if I wait to the afternoon, there's a very good chance I'm going to get a better set. I'm going to have access to a much better way of doing the mitzvah. Should I grab the mitzvah and do it now or wait? The Babylonian Talmud would say, just grab it, just do it. The mitzvah, just do it right away. Don't worry about the quality so much and the future. Don't worry about the present. This is a moment of doing a mitzvah. Do it. Whereas Jerusalem Talmud says, no, see the potential where you can have a little later and get the mitzvah done anyway, and it'll be done better. It's better to wait. Says the Rebbe, this explains the nuances. It's pretty brilliant if you think about it. Um, if you talk about a fig dryer, Figs ripen one at a time. So a fig dryer indicates the idea, obviously this is by metaphor, that uh, uh, the, 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 you do the mitzvah in piecemeal. You have one, 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 one fig at a time, you dry it, and, uh, and th that would represent that as soon as the mitzvah becomes available, you do it. So for example, I want to write a Torah scroll. I only have access to one piece of hide. Should I start writing the Torah, or should I wait till I get all the hide, make sure it's the best quality? That would depend on which Talmud I'm going by. If I'm going by the Babylonian Talmud, I have one piece of hide. I have one fig. I have one way, to, one step to do it. I grab it and do it. Whereas Jerusalem Talmud would say, no, 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 no. Get the whole hide together. And that's where the porter comes in. It's like, do I just take one fig or do I wait till I have all the figs and then ship them in? And uh, the, the, the putting the Babylonian Talmud, the fig drying being first, represents we're looking for the, just give me a fig, give me another fig, give me a mitzvah, give me the thing, give me the opportunity. I'm not worried so much about the porter aspect. Translation meaning that I'm going to bring it all. I have one mitzvah opportunity, I do it. One potential physical thing that I can potentially use for a mitzvah, I grab it and I do it. Whereas in Jerusalem, Talmud says, wait a minute, let's get a porter here. We're going to do this all together. We're going to find out the best way to do it and the biggest way to do it, and then we're going to ship the whole thing in. We're not looking for one by one. We're not looking for piecemeal. We're not just grabbing a mitzvah when we can get it. We're trying to get the whole thing done in the best, biggest way possible. And that would explain, metaphorically, the change of order between uh, the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, which also explains why in the Jerusalem Talmud alone, let's talk about a pot seller, the concept of a pot seller like the wolf who brings the kill to the den, which means don't immediately go and do it. 
wait and make it better. And that's exactly a Jerusalem Talmud value. Whereas in Babylonian Talmud, there isn't such a value. Rabbi even cites a Mishnah which explains that there were certain instances where certain sacrifices had to be eaten and there was no way to cook it because it was Shabbos. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Babylonian Kohens would eat it raw. The Jerusalem Kohens wouldn't eat it raw. The Babylonian Kohens would eat it raw. The Rebbe says that's an allusion to this concept. Babylonian approaches, I know it's not perfect, but this is what I have available to me now. I'm going to do it. It's a little raw. I'm going to do it. The Jerusalem approaches, no, 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 let's get a pot, let's cook it, let's make the mitzvah well done and properly presented. Based on this, uh, the Rebbe explains, which is what the Sikha really began with, the connection to the portion of Ayachi, that it's explained when Yaakov is blessing Binyamin, his younger son Benjamin, he compares him to a wolf, and it's explained why, because the temple was in his portion in Jerusalem. And the temple and the altar is like a wolf which swallows up the sacrifices of the Jewish people in a good way, represents that it gains atonement for the Jewish people. It's like a wolf. We find two languages in the Targum, in the various translations of the Torah, the various uh, 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 translations into, uh, there's two translations, Targum Unculus, the Unculus translation in Aramaic, and Targum Yonison, the uh, Targum of Yonison in Aramaic, our Unculus, uh, they both say nominally the same thing. Benjamin is like the wolf, because in his section is where the sacrifice are gobbled up. However, there's one word difference. In the Unculus translation, it says in his section is the altar, gobbles up the blood. And in the, in the uh, Targum Yonison, it says, that in his section is the base Hamikdash, the holy temple, which has the sacrifices. Why the difference? Why the Babylonian Talmud only talk about the altar per se, even though the altar is typically in the temple, whereas Jerusalem, I'm sorry, the Targum Unculus, whereas the Jerusalem uh, a, a translator, Yonason, speaks about the whole temple. So that ever says it fits right in line with what we've been discussing. By Ruah Halacha, it's theoretically possible, according to many opinions, to bring offerings without the temple, just if we have the altar. If we have the altar and we're ritually pure, and we know exactly where the altar has to be in the precise space, according to some opinions, we can bring offerings. It's not beautiful, you don't have the temple, but there is such a concept. Parenthetically, this is the, this is the reason why in 1967, when we, for the first time since the destruction of the temple, had control over the temple mount, the Rebbe told Hasidim not to be in the, in the old city um, on Erev Pesach because they may have an obligation to bring a Paschal sacrifice. Because the minute you have access to the altar, there's a concept and there are opinions that you should bring the offerings. Ah, you don't have a temple, so you don't have the whole perfection, but you take what you can get. And that would be the Babylonian approach and the Tagamunkas, which is a Babylonian uh, commentary. That's why I put them in the left column. That's where we hailed from. And therefore, when he speaks about Benjamin's greatness as a wolf, as one who gobbles up offerings, he doesn't mention the temple. He mentions the altar. He mentions the, the way of bringing the offering even quicker without having to wait for the whole temple to be built. There's such a place in Judaism. Whereas Targum Yonis adds one word. What is it? The house of Hashem, the Beis Amigdash, the holy temple, because, because he hails from Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem approaches, don't rush. Give me the whole picture. 
give it to me correctly with the holy temple. This becomes uh, the sicha. The Rebbe doesn't give specifically a lesson, but one can see many lessons, and I'm going to make a suggestion of one of such. And that is that we know that the two Talmuds, Babylonia and Jerusalem, <coughs> generally represent, generally correspond and represent Sadikim, <coughs> perfect Jews, those few and far between, and Bali Tshuva, struggling Jews, which is the rest of us. Or in the Tana language, the Tzaddik and the, and, and the Benoni, the Tzaddik and the Bali Tshuva. How so? Because Jerusalem Talmud is very short discussion. There's not a lot of question and answer confusion. You go straight to the point like a Tzaddik, he knows what to do. Whereas the Babylonian Talmud is full of long discussion, back and forth, pages upon pages to the one, two pages of Jerusalem Talmud. Because there's discussion of every potential possibility until it finally comes to the clarity. And that is representative of the journey of most of us, which is a struggling one. You're not always right. You're not always sure. There's confusion, there's setbacks. But then you get to the conclusion. It's also further explained that ultimately Hashem's greater wish, so to speak, is in the Baltruva, the struggling Jew, which is why most of us are in that category. And that's why it's interesting that when there's a debate or disagreement between the two Talmuds, the law will come down like the Babylonian Talmud. There's a historic reason for that because it was concluded 100 years later than the Jerusalem Talmud, and we go by the ruling of the, uh, of the later one because it has the information of the former. However, on a spiritual level, it represents that there's a virtue, there's an edge of our service, of the struggling Jew service, the Benini, the Baltruva, to even that of the Tzadik. And therefore, the halacha will go like the Babylonian town. So if this is the case, you can start to see the whole picture. Should I grab a mitzvah, or should I wait till I'm ready for that mitzvah? As a, for instance, when the Rebbe introduced the idea of putting on Rabbeinu Tam Tefillin, years ago, it wasn't done by everybody. You had to wait till you were 18 years old, or you were married, and most Hasidim would ask the Rebbe's permission before they started doing it. Like, don't jump. The Rebbe in later years, starting, I believe, from 1978 or 77, uh, asked that everybody, everybody should start laying and we should get the best of filling. And many other examples where the Rebbe encouraged to do things on a very high level that heretofore were reserved for righteous people. What are you jumping? You're starting to have two pairs at the filling. Another example that comes to mind that today every Balabavachah Chassid has 18 or 36 you know, myrtles in his lulav, because the Rebbe did it. And the Rebbe actually encouraged us to do it. As a child growing up, most of us didn't do it. The Rebbe did it. It was the Rebbe's thing. But in the last few years of the Sikhs, the Rebbe shared it with us and sort of encouraged us to do it. Like, why? You're sort of skipping steps. You're taking on levels of observance that are beyond your level. But that's the Babylonian way. That's the way of the Baal if you're a tzaddik. So wait to do something until you're ready for it. You'll get there. For most of us, we're not really going to get there. We're not going to arrive to that place of perfection. That's when Mashiach comes. For now, you have a mitzvah opportunity grab. You decide that you want to take on this mitzvah or this area of Torah study. For example, the PLS people. I'm going to go through the whole Akute Sichos right over the 10-year period. And someone might think, who am I to do this? I never even learned through the Talmud. I never even learned through other things of Chassidus. And I'm suddenly going to learn the whole of Sikhas, or I'm going to start learning Rambam three times a day, or I'm going to take on whatever. When I learned the Sikha with my Chabad house people, I can give many examples of people who are who are learning Sikhas who may not yet be Shama Shabbos, who I'm encouraging to start doing mitzvahs. They're going to do Mincha. They're going to, one guy said he's going to start doing Mincha. That's going to be his resolution for 2023. And he's not yet Shama Shabbos. He tries, but he's not quite there. 
And he's doing mincha? So I might mock at it. Like, what's the point? And the answer is the Babylonian Talmud approach. The Balchuva approach is, we're not perfect anyway. Grab the mitzvah. You're doing mincha? Good. You have a chance to put tefillin one time? Do it. Don't wait for perfection. We are still in the situation of Golos and the situation of Golos where most of us in the Babylonian column. And therefore, we just grab the mitzvah and we do it. I will add that at the same time, the Rebbe encouraged us to see that Mashiach is coming. And therefore, you can find plenty of observances that the Rebbe lead to the Jerusalem Talmud. And one of the examples is, again, if you think of exile in general as a Babylonian approach and Mashiach as a Jerusalem approach, because I guess we'll all be like tzaddiks when Mashiach comes. One of the examples is the aforementioned. That the Rebbe encouraged Hasidim to wait with the bris and get a big crowd. I don't know what they did in past generations, but that's certainly become sort of the Chabad custom for today. Perhaps the Rebbe is elevating us to Jerusalem, Talmud's way of thinking as well, even as we're still struggling with the other stuff. And we're getting ready for Mashiach, uh, the Balchuva and the Tzaddik, when both will be come together as one.